You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Isaiah 25, verses 1 through 12. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, planned, formed of old, faithful and sure, for you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat, as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands, and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is the word of the Lord. And for our New Testament reading, please turn to 1 Corinthians 5. First Corinthians five, one through thirteen. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate this festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, 
drunkard or swindler, not to even drink with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among, from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that your spirit wielding your word might make us wise, might make us courageous, might make us humble and faithful, that we would love your word, that we would faithfully live according to your word in this time, in this place, in the neighborhoods that you've appointed us to live, um, in in the workplaces that you've called us to. In every place that you have put us, whether it's where we buy coffee, or it's where we look at spreadsheets, or if it's um, the, the neighborhood in which we throw barbecues, God, I pray that you would make us wise, faithful, and courageous people. God, teach us now, according to your word, help us to think clearly about what's going on in this text, and to then situate ourselves according to this word faithfully and rightfully in your word, in your world. In your name we pray, amen. I want to begin by giving you a small lesson about life at the United States Naval Academy. I begin there because I think there's something to learn that we're going to see reflected in this text um, by analogy. Um, As you may or may not know, there are um, three primary uh, military academies in the United States. So you go there for college, um, Army, ugh, Navy, yay, um, Air Force, double. Uh, so, um, if, so, so you, you go to one of those schools. One of the programs that they have there um, is that uh, during your junior year, um, you can be an exchange student. So you can be, um, say, a student at the Naval Academy, and for some insane and ridiculous reason, um, you think it'd be great to spend a year in Colorado Springs, and so you go and you spend a year in Colorado Springs. Or you may think, ah, I really want to go to the cold, barren wastelands of West Point, and so I want to go and be miserable for a year, and I'm going to go to West Point. So you go to West Point, um, and you go, and those students are then exchange students at the Naval Academy. Now, one of the interesting things that happens is all three of those schools, except for Air Force, um, have have deeply rooted traditions, history, practices. I mean, certain chants that you chant and songs that you sing and just dumb college things that you do um, that are particular to those institutions. And one of the things that happens is when you go and you're an exchange student one of the other academies or you're, you come to the Naval Academy and you see these exchange students um, is they often are really out of step with the particular traditions, the particular songs, the particular ways of living out life um, at that particular academy. Now, most of the time, relations are relatively friendly. Like, everybody kind of gets along, except around a few key events during the year, one of them being football season. During football season, everything is just openly hostile. Um, You have... Uh, freshmen um, doing practical jokes, throwing things at the um, much older um, students from the other academies. The week, the game week, when your academy is playing their academy, um, their life is pretty much miserable. Their, their goal is to make sure they don't sleep, they don't make it to class, um, they get in lots of trouble 
their uniforms are, are, are well, gross. Um, th- there is a kind of open hostility that breaks out. Meanwhile, um, the exchange students kind of do undercover secret missions to kind of slowly deface certain parts of the academy grounds or the history of that place. Um, there is kind of a, a, a moment that kind of breaks open um, for the week leading up to, say, the Navy Air Force game here in four weeks or so, um, that is just open, open conflict. It, it's just flat out they don't like each other and they do bad things to each other. Um, at the particular game, they'll do what they call a prisoner exchange where exchange students at the Naval Academy um, will then go, get, go and sit with their, their friends at their particular academy and vice versa. Um, and you are back home. You're at peace. Everything um, seems to be fine. But there is this rhythm that kind of goes throughout the year um, in which you, are, you don't belong in that school. You don't belong to the traditions of that school. Um, you don't belong to the, um, the, the history of the school. Even some of the um, ways that, that upperclassmen and lowerclassmen relate, like, like you're just out of step with how things are. And, and while um, that's always kind of recognizable, everybody laughs at it, their uniforms are different, the way you're dressed is different, um, everything is, is a little bit out of step, um, as you're living life side by side in these two different contexts, um, every once in a while, at key moments, hostilities kind of come to the surface. And those differences aren't just um, things that, to chuckle at. They're not just things that we laugh at. They're not just um, subtle differences. They're, they're actually open conflict. Um, that there's something like that going on as we consider how the New Testament describes our life in the midst of this age. Um, a, kind of, a kind of calling to live in the midst of cities and neighborhoods and businesses and places where we must be out of step, where we have a different chain of command, where we wear a different uniform, we're clothed in something different. And oftentimes, it's just odd and different, right? Like, we're a little bit out of place. But, but in key moments, in places that we see reoccurring in history over and over and over again, hostilities come right out into the open. Conflict becomes unavoidable. Conflict's just there. Over the last four weeks, we've been walking through different places in the New Testament where the Bible holds out to us what does it mean to live in this place, in this time, particularly in the city of Denver or its surrounding region. What does it look like to live in this culture at this time, at this place? How are we supposed to relate to the world around us? We've taken this up. In large part, because I began to, I really began to wrestle with and praying for our for our community, um, wrestling with what is how do we how do we consider texts in the New Testament that seem to place us in attention. And so you, you have a place where Jesus in John seventeen, what we talked about the very first week, where Jesus says, "I do not ask that you take them out of the world." So here's Jesus explicitly praying to the Father for us and praying to the father and saying I want you to leave them in the world now the problem if you'll remember with that text um, is that he immediately acknowledges that in the midst of that world there is an evil one 
There are powers, there are principalities, there are movements, there are cultural ideas, there are philosophies, there are politics. There are all of kinds of things swirling around in the midst of this age that will destroy people. It will destroy your soul. It will destroy your body. That will destroy your family. That will destroy your marriage. That will destroy your kids. And Jesus prays explicitly not to get us out of that. But rather that we would, in the midst of that, be kept from the evil one. He doesn't pray. I pray that Trinity Church Denver would be smart enough to go and buy land in Saskatchewan. Pretty sure I said that wrong. Canadians, forgive me. Build a fort, farm things, ranch things, have lots of guns and keep out the bad people. Doesn't pray that. Pray the opposite. Pray that you would not take them out of the world, not take them out of Denver, not take them out of Lakewood, not take them out of Wheat Ridge, not take them out of Aurora, Not take them out of downtown Denver, but keep them from the evil one. So you have this text in which there is this calling to live in the midst of the nations, to live in the midst of unbelief, to live in the midst of of all kinds of cultural movements and ideas and practices that are directly contradictory to the word of God, the commands of God, the holiness of God, the goodness of God. To not be taken out of that. But then in the midst of that, Jesus gives us commands like love your neighbor. It it gives us a commission that we are to be a people who are seeking, actively seeking, that our neighbors would be reconciled to the living God. Then you take that ideas and you begin to um, put them in, in the context of what we looked at the last two weeks. Ephesians 6. Here, Paul describes our life in the midst of the nations, our life in the midst of a city like Denver, and he says you need to be equipped a certain way. Like it's not a peacetime posture. It's not a, a way of living in the world where everything's fine. We're all just walking down the beach, having a grand time. Remember one year we were um, visiting a beach and uh, one of my children, um, the entire week that we're there, um, she just kept saying over and over and over again, but dad, what if a tidal wave comes? Or a hurricane? Or an earthquake? And I was trying to tell her, like, you're ruining all of our vacations. What's wrong with you? <laughs> but there was this... Uh, open recognition. I mean, I, I felt like everything was safe and good because we were. Everything was fine. Um, but she lived with every time she looked out at the ocean, she thought, "What if a giant wave comes and kills us? What if a giant hurricane comes and then causes a giant wave to come and kill us?" There was an awareness, maybe a heightened, maybe over awareness of the danger. I think in our day and age, I think given the last several decades uh, of life in the church in the West, 
we have an under-realized sense of the danger of the place in which we live, the time in which we live. And so Paul in Ephesians 6 commands us to be equipped for a certain kind of warfare. Warfare not fought primarily with swords and knives and whatever else, but rather fought by clinging to the words of God, by holding fast to faith, by, 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 by being identified completely with the, the gospel work of Jesus to redeem us and to rescue us and to forgive us of our sins, to be armed with the words of God. And so he, he, he commits us to a way of life in the world that uncomfortably seems equipped, marked by making war. It's unavoidable in the text. That's Ephesians 6. And then we saw last week, how does that, what does that word look like? What kind of um, outcome or, or, or fruit should we expect from that? And so he uses a metaphor in 2 Corinthians to describe um, the, the Jesus as a conquering king. And who has he conquered? You and me. He's conquered us. And so he parades us through the cities of the earth, the cultures of the world. He, he parades us, a people conquered by Jesus, a people um, uh, who, who have been in, are now enslaved to Jesus, a people who belong to Jesus. He parades us in the midst of Denver, Colorado, in the midst of Arvada, in the midst of Lakewood, in the midst of Wheat Ridge, in the midst of every culture and every city and every neighborhood. He parades us in the midst of those places um, as, uh, as, a, as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, a people who utterly and completely belong to Jesus. And the reaction of, of a watching world, the reaction of your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, is one of two things. And they're not mild reactions. They're as extreme as you can imagine. To some, it smells like life. They see a people who belong to Jesus. They're compelled um, to, to love Jesus, to worship Jesus, to belong to Jesus, to delight in Jesus. So they're saved. And to others, you and I smell like death. You don't respond lightly to death. You hate death. You can't help but react to the smell of death. And remember, last week we ended, where Paul ends in that text, who is, who, who can do this? So this week we turn now to 1 Corinthians 4 and 5. And we go here because the, 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 my original thinking um, around this whole series came as I was reading 1 Corinthians and came across these verses and it just struck me. How do we do this? Well, listen to this in verses 9 and 10. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Those two verses 
tell us something vitally important about how we're to live in this time and this place. And, uh, and so I want us to consider those two verses, but in order to consider those two verses, I, I think we need to um, work our way. Actually, we're going to spend more time in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians than we are actually in those verses. Um, and, and here's why. Um, chapter 4 sets us up with the, the problem or the soil that gives rise to the problem that occurs in chapter 5 that Paul's addressing. In other words, if you want to get to the root of the problem that, that he begins to address in chapter 5, and here's the problem in a nutshell. Um, you have a church that's very proud. It's arrogant. But, but it's not arrogant in that it holds fast to the words of God and believes it knows what God says. That, that actually is not arrogance. It, it, instead, it's a church that's arrogant in ways that are nuanced for us in chapter 4, and its arrogance is, is seen in a surprising place in that there is sexual immorality happening in the congregation uh, uh, from someone who claims to be a believer. It's unrepentant sin, and the church is refusing to address it. Instead, it remains proud. So the problem that's presented, that, that, that the fruit is, is in chapter 5 is this, that there is unrepented of sin happening in a congregation, a, a kind of behavior that's happening in the congregation that just so happens to be sexual in nature that is in direct contradiction and rebellion against the word of God um, and the church, rather than addressing it, continues to just live its life proudly in the midst of Corinth. So Paul addresses that head on in chapter 5. He makes a distinction Verses 9 and 10, if there is a kind of loyalty to Jesus that should lead you to disassociate from certain people, um, to, to do what he says here, that this really, really strange phrase that we're going to look at, um, to, to hand this man over to Satan, the destruction of his flesh. There, there's a, a holiness or loyalty to Jesus that should result in kind of harshness in the face of sin, and that's, that, that loyalty is not violated by continuing to associate with sexually immoral people of this world, or greedy people of this world, or swindlers of this world, or idolaters of this world. So we're going to get there. I want to spend the next few minutes looking at chapter 4. Um, there's four steps in Paul's argument in chapter 4 that set us up for chapter 5. First, I want you to notice how he opens in the first five verses. This is important because it's really the cornerstone to everything else he's saying. In fact, it's the cornerstone of everything Paul has ever said. This is how one should regard us. As servants or slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So, step one we belong to God, we are servants 
of God. We are slaves of God. It's the same point we made last week, reasserted here. In fact, one of the things you'll find in Paul, this is a point he comes back to over and over and over again. Um, And anytime you see something repeated as often as this is in Scripture, you should stop for a minute and say, this must be important because God has repeated himself. Like over and over again. When God repeats himself, you should go, whoa, that was important. So like if I say, I often repeat myself to my children, but that's not because it's necessarily important. It's often because I forget that I already said it. And so, um, but God never forgets. He just repeats himself. And when he repeats himself um, through the voice of Paul, you and I should take note. And so this is, in other words, this is something that is found to believe this, to never forget this, to hold fast to this, to order our life according to this, um, is actually foundational to Christian living. And it is this, you and I are servants of Christ. You belong to God. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Let me say that again, because the ramifications of this just don't stop. They touch everything. You and I belong to Christ. You and I were bought with a price. We are not our own. Because we're not our own, Paul is then free in these verses. It's a kind of freedom that I pray we would have. Paul says that he doesn't even care what they think of him. He doesn't care if they judge him. He doesn't even judge himself. Imagine being that free. Imagine it for a moment. To so completely belong to Christ, to so, to, that all of your actions, all of your words, all of your attitudes, all of your beliefs would so completely and absolutely belong to Christ, um, to, to, to be um, utterly convinced that the only opinion that matters is God's. The only words that matter is God's. The only judgment that matters is God's. You're free to just speak and to act and to live and never stop for a moment to think, I wonder what Justin Bowler would think about me doing that. Really don't want to disappoint Justin Bowler. He has many children. What if he judges me for only having three children? Wow, what if, what if Isaiah thinks I'm whatever, selfish, stupid, proud, arrogant? And I want Justin Bowler to think I'm wise. I want Isaiah to think I'm powerful. I want them to know how great I am. I mean, think about how much the opinions of others, and it's maybe not those others, but maybe it's these others. You know what I'm saying? 
whoever it may be, um, consider how much the opinions of those other people dictates to you what you say, how you say it, um, what you believe, how you believe it, what you do, or how you do it. Imagine being able to say with Paul, with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. (laughs) I'd love to say that to you, Justin Bowler. I don't care if you judge me. Whatever. It's small. Your judgments are small. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So here is a man so utterly belonging to Jesus. He knows he belongs to Jesus. He's a servant of Jesus. He's been given something to steward, um, namely the mysteries of God. Um, And he has to be faithful in stewarding those mysteries, that word given to the nations. Um, he, He belongs so completely to Jesus that there is no one's judgment that matters to him besides the judgment of God. That's free. It's gloriously free. that, that, That has ramifications for every arena of life. Politics, social policy, economics, to take big cultural themes, and how you discipline your kids, how you educate your kids, how you handle your finances, how you think about marriage, all of it, completely and only subject to the judgment of God, according to his word. Not subject to (laughs) in-laws. Or the latest psychological fad. Or the latest kind of stream of social media marriage advice. Subject only and completely to Jesus. Some of you don't need to listen to the rest of the sermon. You should get hold of that. That's a whole sermon right there. And I'm... (laughs) Tempted to sit there, but I'm going to let it go. But some of you, that's just where you need to live right now. Your life is a race to please people. A race to impress people. A labor. You're enslaved to the judgments and opinions of others. And you must be subject to Jesus. Jesus alone. That's step one for Paul. Step two. He's also very, very clear that he will not add, he will not go beyond what is written. And one of the temptations we're not going to spend as much time at this, on it this week as we, um, as we are the other temptation that he's going to go into in the next paragraph. Um, one of the constant temptations um, in all of religious history 
um, and even in Christian history, is to go beyond the words of God, go beyond the law of God. Um, to take the scriptures, to take the morality that's outlined for us in the text, um, to take the commands that are laid out for us in the text, to take the promises that are laid out for us in the text, and to go beyond it in describing the world and going beyond it to describe right morality or wrong morality, um, to create ethical norms that go beyond what God himself has commanded us. And Paul says we have refused to do that. We're not creating extra laws, extra morality, extra commands, unbiblical distinctions between people. Um, this is a constant temptation because we love to weaponize anything we can get our hands on in order to exalt ourselves above other people. We want to be better. So we'll take something as stupid and inane as race, use it to exalt people and put other people down. We'll take something like wealth, socioeconomic demographics, and use that to make ourselves better than others. We'll even take really good things things that God himself has given us and use it to exalt ourselves above others. Paul says here, we don't do that. Because why do you boast as if you did not receive everything you have? There's a whole nother sermon there. It just makes me want to preach 1 Corinthians, I'll be honest. Third step. He begins to draw a contrast between the church in Corinth and his own life. Particularly, their standing in society in Corinth and his. And this is where I, I think we begin to see the particularly sticky temptation that I think we face in particular in our day and our places, our, our towns, our cities, our culture. So look at the words he uses to describe the church in Corinth. They're rich. They're almost like kings. They're, they're, in other words, they, they seem to be ex accepted, respected in the upper echelons of society. They're considered wise that somehow their belief in Jesus has made them wise. They're strong. They're honored. See the language there? Example, verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You were held in honor, but we in disrepute. So the church in Corinth had a particular standing, a position, a reputation. In the city, they were seen as being strong and powerful and wealthy and wise, highly esteemed among those in power. They were a cosmopolitan group, well respected, not derided, certainly not like those crazy Christians over there, you know, Paul. I like those apostles, those crazy guys, fanatics. I like them. 
Listen to Paul's description of himself and the other apostles. They are a spectacle. (laughs) You want to be a spectacle? They're considered fools. Considered weak. They are of disrepute. They are poor. They are buffeted. They're homeless. They're reviled. They're persecuted. They're slandered. They are the scum of the earth. Does it sound appealing? Let me make it concrete. How would you feel if your coworker at your office in the cubicle next to you sending scathing emails to your coworkers slandered who you were they called you scum of the earth that organized people throwing their I don't know what you'd throw in a cubicle office bags of chips apples maybe a banana peel throwing things at you Like, if, if you knew, like, holding fast to the words of Jesus would cause you to lose your job. Like, believing what Jesus says about, let's talk about this particular cultural moment, gender and sexuality. Holding fast to it, it would lead you into poverty, slander, being a spectacle being derided, being buffeted. I I guess that's like being punched. (laughs) Like light, it feels like light punches though. Not like heavy duty punches. Just, you know, I'm just getting buffeted. Not beaten. In, In other words, Paul describes a contrast between the way the Corinthian church viewed themselves, the, the kind of position they were seeking and, and, and living in the midst of um, in the city of Corinth, he contrasts it um, with these servants, slaves of Jesus, who are trying to faithfully steward the mysteries of God. And, and here's the fundamental difference between them. Um, Paul says, I am, uh, we are hated, we, we don't have money, um, we're often hungry and thirsty, we're beaten, we're slandered, people tell lies about us, we're a spectacle everywhere we go, um, uh, people look and mock and hate and d- d- um, 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 absolutely uh, are disgusted by who we are. We know this from the book of Acts. Paul and the other Christians are seen as an enemy of the state, an enemy of Roman culture, an enemy of of the good. And what's interesting is like we often think of um, the kind of persecution that Paul talks about here, um, the kind of standing in society that Paul talks about here, as though it comes about from some sort of highbrow theological debate with the surrounding culture. Like the main issue in Rome was like there's Romans who um, didn't believe that you know Jesus was divine and the Christians believed that Jesus was divine and they had 
um, a, a debate, and the Christians lost, and so then they were mocked. Um, as though the main issue at, at, at large in society um, had primarily to do with kind of philosophy and ideas. When, when in reality, historically, we know this, and we actually see this throughout the whole New Testament, um, as Paul is, is commanding the Christians not to be ashamed of Christ, not to be ashamed of the cross, and also not to be ashamed of his commands. And the primary place we see this running up against the Roman culture and history is all about morality and ethics. And for the Christians, they wouldn't, they wouldn't negotiate on, on, on pinching incense to Caesar. They wouldn't negotiate on the kind of service they would offer in the Roman army. They, they wouldn't negotiate on, on, all kind, they, they, on, on allowing babies to be abandoned and killed. They wouldn't negotiate on these things. They held fast to what God commanded them. They held fast to God's um, morality with regards to sexuality. They held fast to these things. And then the surrounding culture, at every point that they were at odds with them, um, would call into question um, whether or not they were um, pursuing the common good, whether they're doing good things to their neighbors, or are they enemies of the state? And for the Christians, every single time the debate fell down to one fundamental place, we are servants of Jesus. Not Rome. Not Caesar. Not whatever secular or Roman sense of the common good there is. We belong to Jesus. And it's not that they're trying to be a spectacle or trying to be considered foolish or trying to be poor or beaten or reviled or persecuted or slandered. It is because of an all-encompassing, and that's a key word, not just in their heads, not just in terms of sentiment or sense of feelings, that every single part of their life Every opinion that they held that they knew was not their own but belonged completely and utterly to Jesus. And the result at this particular moment in history was that they were reviled. And Paul looks at the church in Corinth and says, You're not reviled. And he Ends here. This is the fourth step. By the way, the thing, I don't think he says that riches are bad, authority is bad, wise, wisdom being seen as wise is bad, being honored is bad, being strong is bad. I think he's calling them to stop for a moment and consider that these faithful servants aren't held in that esteem. Why are they reviled and you're not? That's a really good question. Because maybe the reason why these Christians aren't reviled is because Corinth has seen massive outbreak and revival and a widespread loyalty to Jesus. It'd be awesome, right? Society starts getting restructured and becomes at peace with even encouraging faithfulness to Jesus and the laws of God and the commands of God. Like, 
Maybe that's why um, in, in any particular cultural moment, that's not um, why you aren't experiencing slander and reviling and weakness and being considered the scum of the earth. But I think Paul's point is the more a society is out of step, the more a city, and by the way, Corinth was one of the worst, the more a city is out of step with or in rebellion against the word of God and the rule of God and the reign of God and the goodness of God and the commands of God, the more those who are loyal to God, loyal to his words, loyal to how he orders society, loyal to how he commands us to live, loyal to his grace and his mercy, loyal to the, to, to the work of Jesus and the name of Jesus and the authority of Jesus, the more those people will be reviled. And so, if you and I live in a time or a place where the words of God or the ethics of God or the laws of God or the grace of God or the word of God is hated, then in accordance with your loyalty to that word, you will be hated. And the temptation particular temptation, I think, for us in this cultural moment, in this moment right now, living in this city, is that we would take the word of God and we would minimize or jettison anything that would cost us wealth, authority, the perception of being wise or strong or honored, that we would so want to avoid being reviled or misunderstood or slandered or hated or losing our jobs, that we would treat as small anything that God says. I think we have known an extended season of relative peace. And who knows? Perhaps it will be that way again soon, but perhaps not. And the call of Jesus is to live in the midst of this moment, in this place, and to be absolutely certain that we are servants of Jesus, which might mean, in the midst of open hostility, being reviled, dishonored, slandered, persecuted, Buffeted. Not beaten too hard, but, you know, hit a few times. And I think we as Christians have been trained for the last several decades to love and desire above everything else to be liked. To not be thought of as those Christians over there. I think, frankly, like for many of us living in urban centers who are evangelical Christians, we have been discipled into a way of being in the world that has trained us to say over and over and over again, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but not like Paul, (laughs) that guy. And I think the primary place where the rubber meets the road in our day and in Paul's day 
is the, is the particular point of, of ethical living and particularly sexual ethics. Which is why I think as he moves from chapter 4 into chapter 5, he begins to come into conflict and begin to name a particular sin um, in the church in Corinth. I don't think um, that there's a language here about them being proud. Um, uh, I don't think they're proud of the particular sin that's happening in their church. I, I think they're just proud and they want to keep their place in the city, keep their place in society, keep their place in the midst of the pagans. And so they, they don't address sexual immorality that's going on in their congregation. That's going on in their church. And so Paul calls them out on this. He says, look, you, you, you can't let this go on. Like this leaven, this will actually infect everything in your church. Um, and so he commands them um, to, to take this unrepentant person, this couple um, that's engaged in sexual immorality, um, and to throw them out, to cast them, to, to hand them over to Satan. Uh, we don't have, um, I'm completely out of time. Uh, but the, the handing over to Satan um, if you understand biblically who Satan is, what Satan does, uh, this isn't some sort of like weird demonic ceremony. Like, you know, someday we're not going to like, you'll come in and like things are dark and I'll be wearing a black robe and we'll sacrifice some sort of chicken and, and hand someone over to Satan. Um, but the, what Satan does in the Bible is he does two things all the time. It's like his job. He lies, deceives, and two, he accuses. And so what you have here um, is someone um, who, who's so committed to sexual immorality, so committed uh, to a sexual relationship that he's not to be in this in contradiction to the word of God, um, uh, that, that what Paul says is you as a church should hand him over to the lie he's clinging to and to the accusation of the evil one. In the hopes that he'll be saved. Like there's something powerful about a congregation saying that what you're doing is sin. Handing him over to accusation in the hope that in the midst of that accusation, he would turn and be saved. But Paul says that there must be, in the midst of God's people, a such complete and absolute loyalty to the rule and the reign and the words of Jesus um, that you pursue together holiness. Now, that doesn't mean perfection. That doesn't mean, hey, you sinned this week. Uh, who sinned? CJ definitely sinned this week. CJ, you're out. Is that how you do the out? No, it's like, it's like this. You're out. That's not how this goes. Um, it is persistent, unrepentant sin in the midst of God's people, um, it must be confronted. And if there's no repentance, it must be cut out. But the interesting thing here is, again, going back to verses 9 and 10. He doesn't say that we're supposed to, that the, the mark of the Christian community is to have nothing to do with the sexually immoral who are outside of the church. Like, I, I remember certain church contexts growing up in which in order to not associate with the immoral, we will boycott Disney. We're taking a stand for God. It's like the opposite of what this text says. There might be good reasons not to go to Disney. Like, you should go somewhere else that's more fun. But it's not because we're supposed to cut ourselves off from the surrounding culture. 
Because God says, no, you're supposed to live right smack dab in the middle of it. Like, don't avoid coffee shops because you don't like the flags in their windows. Don't avoid, like, it, it means a complete and absolute loyalty to Jesus that is not cut off from the city around us. That is persistent in pursuing a kind of glorious and happy holiness as a community. And is in, in the midst of the world of the sexually immoral, um, the, the swindlers. I would avoid business deals with swindlers, but, but you can be their neighbors. Um, or the greedy or idolaters. What Paul calls us to here is a kind of living in the midst of the city in which we are absolutely, gloriously, rigidly Loyal to Jesus. We see ourselves as stewards of the mysteries of God. Of the gospel of Jesus. Of the reign of Jesus. Of the laws of Jesus. And we live our life faithfully and publicly in the midst of this world knowing that that as, as our neighbors, if it becomes increasingly secular, increasingly committed to not following the ways of Jesus and not worshiping God, it will become increasingly hostile to you and me and our way of life. But our prayer and our hope is that God would make us and form us as a people who are so utterly fixated on the work of Jesus that we consider the judgments of no man. Instead, we say again and again and again, we belong to Christ. Our opinions belong to Christ. Our children belong to Christ. Our children belong to Christ. Our marriages belong to Christ. Our politics belong to Christ. Our businesses belong to Christ. Our our, our sources of income belong to Christ. May we be a people who belong to Christ. Let's pray. And so, Father, we come to this table, a table where we are reminded again that we belong to Christ. We're in bread and wine. We are united with Jesus. Our sins have been dealt with by Jesus. And we are fed through and in Jesus. So come now and meet us in this table and at this table as you've promised and bless this food as we eat it and we drink it. In your name we pray, amen.